Well, this morning, um, I'm continuing on in a series that looks at the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Uh, Corinth was a metropolis in its day. It's now essentially just an archaeological uh, remnant of what it once was. But Corinth used to be a trading center where a diverse group of of, uh, cultures would meet. And in doing so, they brought with them all of their beliefs, all of their values, all of the structures that they held society together with. And so in this big melting pot, you've got all of these different ideas now circulating and percolating in a way that would bring revelation to people of how life can be lived, but also obviously bring confusion to how people should live. And so we're going through this book and uh, looking at Paul, Paul's writings to the Corinthians, and we're going to find ourselves looking at something very, very counterculture this morning. So let me pray and um, we'll open up scriptures together. Father, we thank you that for Paul, as he wrote this letter to the Corinthians 2,000 years ago, that this letter has had life to the point where we can pick it up today and it speaks to us. For 2,000 years, the Corinthian story has been shared amongst the church and has grown the church, has challenged the church so that it would be the church. It would be distinct, it would be different, it would stand out from the crowd. And so for us today, we want to be able to pick up that same spirit of revelation that Paul was pouring into this letter as he wrote to this tiny little church in a place called Corinth. So we ask your blessing upon our time here today. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, love is defined by a key word today. Love is defined by that key word. It's called tolerance. If you love me, you will tolerate me. If you love me, you allow me to be me and you can be you. But just don't allow your opinion to actually jump on me and cause me to have to change what I believe is the right way to go. And so we live in a world, don't we, of uh, pluralism. That's a technical term for what that acceptance or tolerance uh, is when we're being asked to tolerate and accept somebody else's difference. It's called pluralism. It means there's a multiple group of ideas that meet together and intersect. The challenge with pluralism is that it means that some ideas aren't going to be popular because they contradict other people's freedoms and other people's ideas. And so for Paul, as he writes to the Corinthians, he's writing from a Jewish perspective, he's writing from a Christian perspective, but he's writing into a city that had a Greek culture dominance. And we're going to describe what that looks like in a moment. But for Paul, he's wanting to shape this Christian community that has been gathered there for only a short period of time, less than a decade, this church has grown, less than a decade. Yet he's going to call them on some behaviors because their behaviors look a lot like the society around them. In fact, some of their behaviors are even worse than society around them. So I'm calling the message this morning, Tough Love. Some of you may have heard or been part of the program that helps families go through difficult times called Tough Love, where parents go to a, a meeting and they can say, look, my, my teenage son or my teenage daughter is uh, really giving us a hard time. We're not sure how to, how to respond to this. And often the response is tough love. You can't keep enabling somebody's bad behavior by supporting them and calling it love. Love actually has boundaries and limits. You can't just say, I'm going to keep on giving my son money as he feeds a drug habit. That would be stupid love, not tough love. And so tough love says we have boundaries. Now for the Apostle Paul, uh, he's writing from a distance. 
because he has heard about the behaviours that are happening in this young church. And he is, I shouldn't say terrified, but he's rather staggered by what he's heard. And so he writes to the Corinthian church over a number of things. And in chapter five, he takes on something that we, even today, will find uh, rather appalling. Let me read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter five. Paul said, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud? Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? Let's just stop there and get our head around this. Now, Monica Carey spoke last week. She was desperate to preach this passage. She said to me, Craig, I just can't wait to preach this passage. And no, that didn't work that way at all. (laughs) When we're talking about who was going to preach about this, Monica said, don't you give me chapter five? I said, that's fine. That's fine, Monica. I'll take the hits. Now, this is only a beginning of this passage. Paul now goes on to unpack it. But we need to stop here for a moment because whilst it might seem a reasonable request of Paul to say to somebody, stop sleeping with your stepmother, uh, where did that boundary come from? Why do we have boundaries at all? Where does morality come from? What is it, what is it centered in? What is it based upon? Well, for Paul, coming from a Jewish background, his understanding of boundaries and ideals for our relationships comes from the book of Leviticus, where God said, do not have sexual relations with your father's wife. That would dishonor your father. Okay, now if you wanted to, you can go to uh, Leviticus chapter 18, and you find all these different boundaries in respect to who it is you should marry, could marry, not allowed to marry, etc., etc. And so, not having a sexual relationship with your father's wife uh, might seem to us as a pretty obvious thing. In the day when this was announced, it might have been a new thing, speaking to a context. Uh, Further on in the Old Testament, you've got this scripture out of Deuteronomy, which says, a man is not to marry his father's wife. He must not dishonor his father's bed. You go, well, how did that happen anyway? Well, it wasn't unusual if, say, uh, an older man lost his wife. She died didn't lose her as in misplaced her, Uh, she died, and he went to marry again, Um, he would be looking for often someone who could bear him children. And so if he'd already had a family, the distance of age between his second wife and maybe an older son wouldn't have been too great. But uh, the scriptures here, God said, don't marry your father's former wife if he had passed away because it would dishonor him. Okay, so got these rules and regulations in there, all to to keep a society running in a straight course and not get confused into what we we now define as immorality. Of course, we're now looking at a Greek context here. 2,000 years ago, Corinth was a major town in Greece. And of course, the culture there was dominating the way they lived their lives. We, We don't even realize that culture dominates us but it does. Everything we do as New Zealanders is wrapped up in a culture. And we don't even know that culture exists because we just live it, we breathe it. The food we eat, we think it's normal. We go to a different country and we go, oh wow, everything's so different here. But culture is a little bit like when you take your clothes out of the washing machine and you hang them on the clothesline. You know what happens? Culture happens. 
The clothes are exposed to the dry air and they dominate the texture of that set of clothes and they become dry. Isn't that exciting? You didn't realize that every time you did the washing, you're engaging in cultural exchange. Yeah, so men, you should really get into this. I've been told that women like that idea. In fact, if you did that alone, you'd probably get a pass from the marriage course. Okay, so anyway, culture is the domination of one thing over another by virtue of it being present in and around you. Now, what we're doing here is um, we have to introduce you to the way that the Greek people thought and still do in some cases. They defined the human being as split into body and spirit or body, soul and spirit. Body, soul, and spirit being a similar thing. Um, that meant this. That meant that you could treat your body and your soul in two completely different ways. See, within a Greek understanding, the body was designed for your pleasure. You would uh, feed it. You would give it nice things to eat, nice things to drink. You would exercise it. It would become a thing of beauty. And uh, obviously, sexual uh, pleasure was all part of that. But that was distinct from your spirit or your soul. They saw these parts of your body split into two. And so as long as your spirit is being taken care of in a way that was for its eternal good, its eternal well-being, you could do whatever you wanted with your body. Does that make sense? Well, it doesn't have to make sense, but you can see the, see the, the, uh, the way that the worldview was operating there. Within a Hebrew or, or a Jewish mindset, the body, soul, and spirit are all wrapped up into one. These things can't be separated one from another. And so therefore, whatever you did with your body had to honor God as much as what you do with your spirit, your soul, had to honor God as well. The way you think, the way you speak, the way that you act with your body, all of these things were wrapped up into one. And so therefore, you couldn't go have an, um, an illegitimate relationship with somebody without that being deemed as to be dishonoring God. Okay, so here we have a clash of worldviews happening in Greece, and Paul is calling them out on this. This church, this very young church, they didn't know exactly how to function, but one of the bigger challenges that Paul had to um, challenge was the fact that these people who called themselves the church were actually proud, proud of this person in their company who was having a sexual relationship with his mother-in-law, sorry, stepmother, stepmother. Uh, in verse 2, he says, and you are proud. In verse 6, he says, you're boasting about it is not good. So we've got to ask ourselves, how on earth did a community get itself into a situation where it was proud of something that even, as Paul said, the pagans didn't appreciate or value or like or approve of? Well, what it is, is quite simply, it's grace gone wrong. Grace gone wrong. So what happens is there's a subtle shift when you hear about the forgiveness and the grace of God that can happen that leads you into error. And that is that the grace of God gives you the ability to come to God and say, God, forgive me for what I have done. But there's a subtle shift there which says, God, forgive me for what I am doing. Or God, forgive me for what I'm going to do. And this is where great grace gets turned into license, where grace becomes cheap, the opportunity for us to continue in a lifestyle that is contrary to what God sees as his highest for us. And so for this Corinthian church, 
this young man who was uh, having a sexual relationship with his father's wife, for them was a trophy, a trophy of grace, as we might see it. A trophy of someone who knows himself to be caught up in this lifestyle, the sexual lifestyle, but still understands himself as being loved by Jesus, forgiven by Jesus. And so this stands from Paul's perspective as a contradiction. Because when you are known by God, loved by Christ, that kindness of God should lead you towards change, lead you towards repentance. And this is what the contradiction is all about. So in summary, what we could say is that moral problems occur because of wrong thinking about God. Wrong thinking about God. Everything we do will reflect the way that we view God. Everything we do, what we do with our work, what we do with our relationships, what we do with our money, what we do with our health, what we do with our time, everything that we do with our life reflects our understanding of God and his values. So this wasn't just the Corinthian problem. Uh, Paul encountered this problem of grace being used as an excuse to sin uh, time and time again. Paul wrote this wonderful letter to the Roman church. And uh, in Romans chapter 6, Paul poses this rhetorical question. He asks this question, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So what was happening again in the Roman church was people were saying, um, this grace of God is so powerful. The forgiveness of Jesus is so amazing. What say we continue to live in a sinful lifestyle just to prove to people that God still loves us? Can you see how the thinking happens? Like there is actually a logic to this. It's not right, but there is actually a logic to this. You know? It's a little bit like saying, you know, a 19-year-old guy going, you would not believe how much my dad loves me. Really? How much does he love you? Well, let's go take his car and smash it up and you'll find that he still loves me. Why would you say that? Well, I've already done it to two other cars and dad still tells me that he loves me. I put one into the garage, one into the fence and one into the swimming pool and he still comes out and says, oh, son, I love you. Now, that would be stupid, wouldn't it? That's stupid thinking, okay? Now, the grace of God is just that. It's the grace of God. But, um, but we're going to find ourselves um, looking at um, how God gets himself out of this mess by describing to us how sin shall not abound. Paul also said to the Romans, but now that you have been set free from sin, and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So again, Paul saying, this sin thing is to be got rid of. It's not to be celebrated in your life. All right? So let's go back to our, our, our verses in Corinthians here. We'll go from what we started here and we'll move on. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? Paul says, For my part, 
even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I've already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you assembled and I'm with you in spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Wow, this is a pretty heavy scene, isn't it? Eh? So this isn't just about this guy who's uh, in trouble here. This is a whole community that's in trouble because they have been told by Paul that we've got to correct our thinking collectively to the point where we go to this guy and say, hey, mate, um, we've all been getting it wrong. And if you're going to continue in this behavior, Paul has said that you can't be part of this fellowship anymore. So Paul sounds like a hard, tough nut. But in reality, Paul interprets this judgment as mercy. How do you tell somebody that their behaviors are inappropriate? To the young 19-year-old who wants to smash up his dad's car, dad will probably say, no, no, you can't have the keys to the car because you're treating this whole relationship with me with disrespect. How do I know this? Because you treat my vehicles just like they're out of a junkyard. Yeah? And so Paul interprets this judgment as mercy. We sung a song earlier on today. It said, one of the lines said, um, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment, which sounds like we be kind to somebody, we don't judge them. It sounds that way, doesn't it? We be kind to somebody, we don't judge them. That's not what it's saying at all. What it's saying is that ultimately mercy will win. But judgment is still an important part of our well-being. It's part of our discipleship. It's part of our opportunity to grow and to be more like Christ. When we actually call it and say, this is an inappropriate action. This is an inappropriate behavior. Now, we live in a society today where all the morality of yesterday is shifting. And so as a Christian community, just like Paul is asking this community to do, uh, we are defining ourselves by what we do and don't do. And when it comes to our expression of our sexuality, uh, Christians are asked to take a very, very solid position on this. And that means that our sexuality is expressed within a, a marriage relationship, a monogamous marriage relationship, which is a contradiction now to the way that the world is shaping itself. Ever since, the, uh, since contraception became easier in the 60s and the sexual revolution of that era, uh, it's progressed now to uh, sexual behavior being recreation, recreation, not procreation. Yeah, it's recreation, not procreation. We now are more interested in sexual immortality than we are in sexual immorality. Yeah, is that fair to say? I know you're all embarrassed by this, eh? Yeah. I was chatting with some young folks the other night at our home, and I said that in Corinthians we're going to be talking a lot about sex. And, uh, and somebody said, oh, do you feel nervous about talking about that? I said, no, no, we're fine. And somebody said, well, what about the older people? How do they feel about it? And I said, listen, Older folk in our church know more about sex than you, than you know, okay? I can guarantee you, a 70-year-old knows more about sex than you do, Mr. 19-year-old, all right? I can guarantee that. If you didn't, you wouldn't be here, okay? God invented sex. It's God's idea. It's God's plan. It's God's design for our procreation and our pleasure, okay? If the church isn't talking about it, we're the last ones who shouldn't be talking about it because it's all part of God's plan, part of God's design. 
So in this situation, Paul is saying, though, that like for, for the Jewish community and the Christian community, that our faith is represented by the way in which we contain and constrain our sexual behavior. Okay, so in today's environment, that's almost embarrassing. It's almost embarrassing. It's like, well, I'm a Christian, and therefore I'm going to have sex within a, uh, a, a covenant relationship that I have with my husband or my wife, okay? In a um, heterosexual relationship. And when you say that in a society that is just so determined to express itself sexually as a way of recreation, that's a contradiction to the way that the world thinks. But Paul says, we define ourselves by our behaviors, and our behaviors are what it is that people see. We can believe whatever we want. Like this young man who Paul was pulling out of uh, in this letter, he defined himself as a Christian, but his behaviors were even being scoffed and mocked by the pagans. Because even the pagans don't have relationships with your stepmother. So it's the behavior that is actually the expression of what you believe, not just what you believe. Now, this whole thing of what you believe and who you are uh, sort of came to me a couple of weeks ago, quite literally, when I was sitting at my desk and I get a, a text from a friend of mine, Paul, Paul and Selmy, who works up on a farm close to the Kaimais, the Kaimai bush line. And he says, Craig, I've got a photo here of what I saw in the paddock this morning. He said, it's a, it's a deer that thinks it's a sheep. And uh, I, I text back and I said, look, Paul, um, I could educate it by putting it in the freezer with the other venison that I've got there. And um, he goes, no, 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 it's, it's way too young for that. Um, we've got to let it grow a little bit. So that was the end of the conversation. Uh, two days later, Paul sends me another text and he says, this deer still thinks it's a sheep. <laughs> so it's been herded into the pens, uh, obviously for dagging, docking or something. And uh, here it is. And he's right, it's only a little one. You know, I'd be kind to not let it grow a bit further. Um, no, anyway, I won't go there. Um, but clearly, this deer has an identity problem. And I suggested to Paul that if he got a big mirror, put it up in the yard, and then sat down with the deer and had a little bit of a look and a talk and just counseled the deer and say, one of these things do not look like the other, you know? But just be kind to it. But here is exactly what I'm trying to describe out of this, this letter to the Corinthians. This young man thought he was a Christian, but he wasn't. Paul is saying, no, 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 hold on. You can't believe this and do that. Why? Because that's Greek thinking. Greek thinking says that you can believe something, but your actions can be completely different to that because why you're separated into two parts. What you do with your body for your pleasure, the Greeks say, is totally irrelevant to how it is that your spirit, your soul, will be treated in an eternal basis by virtue of what you believe. And so Paul is saying, no, it doesn't work that way. All right, does that make sense? It doesn't work that way. So let's carry on and just see um, what it is that Paul goes on to say. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So who's he talking about here? Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral. No, Paul, they're not immoral. They're just doing what they do. We class it as immorality because it's not Christian. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and the swindlers or the idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. Okay, you'd have to leave the world because we know that there are 
people doing all sorts of different things that aren't captured up in a Christian code of morality or Christian behaviors, yeah? And so Paul is trying to differentiate this group out from the mainstream of society by saying, as Christians, your behavior should be able to speak for itself. Your behavior should be able to define you as somebody who is not like the rest of society. So, um, because we're running out of time here, but I'm going to push forward. But um, what we're actually wrestling with here is the difference in a society between a theocracy and a democracy. Okay? Don't be confused by the crises. Okay? They're all easy words. Theo means God. Okay? So, if you live in a theocracy, God is the boss. When you live in a democracy, like we do in New Zealand, everybody has an equal say. All right? So in today's society, I figured that the the nation of Iran, as a Muslim nation, is probably the closest thing we've got that operates like a theocracy, okay? So the law of God that is expressed through the the clerics, you know, the, the, the leaders of the Muslim church come through, and it affects the rest of society. We live in a democracy where it's everybody's opinion and is, is entitled to be heard, and so it's the bottom up. And we allow ourselves to be shaped by that as a nation. So uh, here we have a theocracy, which was ancient Israel. And Jesus came to speak at a time to this nation of Israel when they were going through a transition. They weren't the theocracy they once were. They were being ruled by the Romans. So that's why the teachings of the kingdom of God are actually quite counterculture and subversive from the bottom up. And this works perfectly well within a democracy, which is exactly what the situation was in Corinth. The Greeks were the ones who founded democracy. It was immature at the time of this writing. It was, it was, it was weak because not everybody had a vote. But a democracy allowed people to be heard. So Paul is saying here that you can't expect to change the world around you, but you can change yourselves. You can't change the world around you, but you can change yourselves. Which is always an interesting um, thing to be thinking about when we're at this season on the three-year cycle of an election. Because a lot of Christians who think that if we can just get into parliament, we can change New Zealand into a theocracy. We can get God back up the top and everybody will go to church. Be sweet. That's not the way the world works. It's not the way God even set things in motion to work. Because we're a bottom-up movement and we are there to bless Firstly, the poor and the needy, and then we move our way through society being salt and light. That has always been our call. And if we can become part of what it is that God is doing at a level of politics, that's fantastic because we can bring influence there. But it's not the domination of one over the other. Okay, If you're looking for domination, that's called an autocracy. Okay, You just need to go to North Korea to find out what that looks like, or China more so these days too, sadly. Paul says, but what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Now, this sounds really tough, eh? Expel that wicked person. But we know that in any given situation, there will be a scenario where people sit down and talk and explain and say, listen, if you want to live in this house, you can't keep smashing my cars up like this. You know, uh, you gotta, we've got to draw the line. And in a context of a church, there's got to be behaviors that are said to be inappropriate. 
Like, I can't turn up to the ro local rugby club, can I, with my football, my soccer ball, and say, hey, guys, I think we need a change around here. You know, I think this, uh, this, the beautiful game of, of uh, soccer is the one that we should be playing, and I'm going to turn up to the training, and I'm going to turn up to the games, and I'm going to kick my soccer ball around the paddock. They'll say, no, 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 hold on. That's not the way we play the game. And so what Paul is saying to this young man who's sleeping with his, what was his stepmother, he's saying, this isn't the way we play the game. This isn't how we do Christian faith. And so Paul is saying, I think it's time that this man was taken out of the community so that he could sober up, basically. He could come to a realization of where he's gone wrong. And Paul says, hand him over to Satan. What he's saying is that hand him over to the destructive forces that are already occurring in his life. Okay? Hand him over to the evil that he's created. And this is tough love, isn't it? This is tough love. One of the bigger challenges that we have within the 21st century is this, is that if we have scenarios where we have to talk to people about their behaviours as being inappropriate uh, or causing um, a, a community to be unsafe in any fashion, um, and I'm thinking here in terms of child abuse and the like, I've been here 25 years and I've had to confront people who we know were acting, would like to act inappropriately to children. And so, you know, within the churches of the city, you know, we have a, a bit of a, a radar going on to pick up on people like that because we're trying to keep people safe. But it might be something a little bit more simple that's a, a moral problem that contradicts the, the Christian code. And we say, hey, listen, you know, this is really important that you, you change this behavior. And uh, people go, oh, yeah, I hear you. But then they leave and they go to one of the other 75 churches in the city. You see, so the, the one advantage Paul had is that he was the only church. <laughs> so, so when you sit to ask to leave, you had nowhere to go. Um, but in today's setting, you can wander down the road and say, oh, at Bethlehem Baptist Church, that guy Craig, uh -huh, he's a miserable so-and-so. He kicked me out. Oh, oh well, we won't do that here. We love you. Um, so anyway, we won't go there, but <laughs> welcome to my life. Um, so... Paul is bringing in a tough love. But the most important thing that you've got to hear is that it is love. And sometimes love has to be tough. We're told to examine ourselves so that we're not examined. Yeah, that's what Paul again tells us. We, we, we take uh, communion here once a month at least. And when we take communion, we take those elements of the bread and the wine. Paul says, don't take it if you've got things happening in your life that are contrary to what God wants for you. Don't take it if you're entertaining and engaging in sin in your life. Just let it pass you by. Why? Because you're judging yourself. The moment that you stop judging yourself and bringing yourself to a place of confession, uh, repentance, and seek forgiveness, that's the moment that your heart, is, your heart has become hard. And that in itself is a failure because it says that you're now going through the actions of being a Christian and your life is untouchable. So I just want to remind you of what that looks like today because we're going to press into this in the next few weeks as we look again at some of the things that Paul calls this community on. But to finish today, I'm going to do something a little bit different. Uh, I'm going to invite Dan to come back up. Dan is going to talk to us about uh, a mission trip where he's going to take um, some of our young people 
to, um, to a place that's probably as um, wild as Corinth was, yeah. Dan. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so tell us, Dan, what's going to happen? Uh, hi, everyone. Welcome again. Um, yeah, so I'm leading a missions trip to Ruatoria. Um, if you don't know where that is, it's way on the east coast of um, North Island there. Uh, this isn't some sort of plan B for COVID. Um, we were always doing this. Uh, I've been there uh, on missions trips. This will be my third time going there. We're taking a whole bunch of teens from this church out um, to do mission in New Zealand. Um, I don't think you have to go overseas to do mission. I think you could do mission uh, locally as well. And so that's, that's the missions trip. So Dan... In keeping with what I'm talking about today, you know, different cultures, mm. you know, um, we've got a lot to learn. Yeah. Tell us about that, because this will be the third time you've taken a group of young people yeah. down to Ruatoria. Yeah, so yeah. third third missions trip. I've been down there five or six times. We actually have uh, Fanangatanga with the people down there, Will and Linda. Um, we love them very much. And we go down, me and my family go down in between missions trips just to see them. So we're not just using them as a wonderful missions base. We actually have relationship with them. Um, but it's really important for us, um, especially young people and I think all Christians, to understand how different cultures view Christ and what we can learn from that. Um, mm -hmm. I've learned heaps about who Jesus is through looking at him through a different lens. And so we go down, we immerse ourselves in Te Rao Māori, we learn uh, tikanga, we learn waiata, karakia, all this kind of stuff. Um, the man we go down to see, that he's the pastor of the church down there. And when I say church, it's 12 people. Um, that's the church. And um, he he has this phrase that says, to be Māori is to be Christian. Now that's quite controversial, but this is how he lives out his faith. Um, and it's an amazing thing. So, um, so that we're taking teenagers to view Christ through a different context. We're taking them out of their comfort zones. We're putting them in rural New Zealand where we'll be doing hunting and fishing and um, yeah, working in towns. We'll be working with widows. We'll be working on marais. We'll be working on um, anywhere that we can, we can serve, running kids programs, helping church, et cetera, et cetera. So this is the lens in which I'm taking teenagers um, to, to, to learn about God. I can teach them stuff here. Me and Michael teach them um, week in, week out, Bible, scripture, history, tradition, all that kind of stuff, but we can't teach experience. So mm. I need to get them up out of their seats, out of their comfy, warm houses, stick them in a marae for a week plus for them to really start to understand and to get it. So how can, how can we help? Uh, three things. Um, first of all, I actually need tools. Um, the tools are like weed whackers, um, gardening equipment, because we help out the, the widows, we go to their houses, we do lawn care and all this kind of stuff. We help out the marais, tidy them up. Some of them are left quite derelict because there's no people in town to, to service them, so we go and do that. So anything gardening, anything mechanical uh, we can use. Um, other tools we need are like children's Bibles, adults' Bibles, um, and anything else that you want to bless this community with. One lady in the first service came up and said we, she wants to donate like saplings and stuff of, of fruit oh, and, yeah. and stuff. I was like, yeah, they, they all grow stuff. They all have gardens. So, so we'll be doing that. The second thing is finances. Um, rather than just, you know, having the, the teenagers kind of buy a ticket, we, I actually want the church to fund this. Uh, as well, so that we're going with the, with the full force of the church behind us. Because what that does is it says, we support this and, and we want to help this thing happen. So, so we need finance support for that as well. And the, the most important thing is prayer support. Where we're going, uh, it's a rough part of New Zealand. Um, it's right out, it's, it's the wild east, um, very much kind of like Corinth. And um, so we do need prayer support and protection. Um, we are going into a little bit of the unknown um, this, this trip. Dan, in my, in my, um, my tool sheet, I've got a whole lot of 
gardening tools that my wife has blessed me with over years that have never been used. Um, mint condition. Mint so, condition. So yeah. In fact, literally some are in their wrapping. Yep. Yeah, I've just been waiting for a special day to use them, but I'd, yep. I think God's telling me to give them to you guys. Yeah, so we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll lovely, lovingly take those. That's, um, that's good. I don't think there's any Christianity without mission, and I don't think there's any youth ministry without mission. Um, and I think this is a first step. Uh, after this, we'll do international mission. After this, we'll, we'll partner with YWAMs and other things like that to grow and send teenagers out so they become lifetime, full-time missionaries, which is what we need. New Zealand needs this. Our church needs this. This, this church here needs this this and they certainly need it um so that's this is you're going to see a lot of me up here uh, every young gonna be asking the same things um for Ruatoria, we're going to be doing this often we're also going to expand it out to places like um waitangi and parihaka um and we're also going to be doing international mission with youth as well so get used to this face asking for stuff because it's going to happen because we oh, like it or not we're doing mission uh, mission here is that all right with you guys it's fantastic yeah that's great thanks man So we're going to finish here today, uh, not with a song, but with a prayer. And uh, I'd like you to stand as we, as we finish. Father, indeed, we, um, we look at Scripture and we find what, that there's a, just a huge contradiction in the way that you want us to live our lives to the way that the world is shaping itself. And uh, that means for us we need courage, courage, bravery, strength, and an understanding of who you are in a greater and greater way that we might... Uh, might not be swayed by society's rules and regulations that they impose upon us through the subtlety of culture. Lord, we thank you for Dan and the mission team there that are allowing these young people to, to travel to the East Coast. And, and for us as a church, Lord, we want to be able to get behind what it is that you're going to be doing in the young lives and also in that community of Ruatoria. Father, we, um, we thank you for Paul's directive to that young man and as an act of mercy called him on his behaviours. For us, Lord, we, we can equally have behaviors that we need to be called on. And we pray that by your spirit or maybe a loving friend who would do that for us, that we can find how it is that you're shaping our lives personally. But as a church, Lord, um, we also need to stand together, realizing that the way that we think of God uh, shapes our behavior. And so, God, we just want to submit ourselves to the authority of the scriptures and, help, uh, and we ask you to help us, Lord, to, to have eyes that understand what it is that you are doing. Lord, we thank you today for Brianna and for Sam. We thank you for their commitment to be baptized in a public way today. And we ask that your blessing, your hand of the hand of your spirit, be working in and upon their lives from now and into the, the future of the years ahead. So God, we thank you for a rewarding day today to be blessed by so much going on. And we thank you for your church. And we pray, Lord, that we can continue to see you prosper in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you.